All right. Happy Friday. We are back with another episode of Learning Tech Talks, where we are exploring the landscape of learning tech while cutting through the fluff and getting your questions answered. Today is going to be all about leadership development. So I'm excited for this one. I'm joined by Matthew Confer, and he is the VP of leadership or VP of strategy at Ability. We're going to get into what that is. Uh, I think I think I pronounced and said all that right, didn't I? You did. I did. I well, good. And and one of the things that I am looking forward to, Matthew and I share this. We both go by the long versions of our names, so that's <laughs> not terribly common. Um, so I get very excited when that happens. But before we get into the dialogue about leadership development, let's let's get started with a couple things. And everybody watching, play along because this is a collaborative effort. So comment in and share where you are in the world today, Matthew. Where are you? I am located in beautiful, but today randomly gloomy Austin, Texas. <laughs> and what's really funny about that is because of the background, the windows behind you, it looks so dark. I actually even had to ask and go, what, what are you, is it the middle of the night right now? So yeah. that did throw me for a loop. Um, so I'm, I'm in Waukesha, Wisconsin, and you did say it is warming up there, correct? It's not it, so it, cold. It is. And as people are probably familiar, we dealt with some winter weather uh, over the last uh, week or so. Um, it then warmed up. Now it's gloomy again, but thankfully it will be warming up again soon. Okay. Gloomy, but not sub-zero temperatures. <laughs> gloomy, but not sub-zero. <laughs> Excellent. Well, it is still pretty cold here, although it's a balmy 40 degrees today. So some of our snow is starting to melt. Um, I'm in Waukesha, Wisconsin, where I always am. So let's go to the next one. This one's going to be fun. So from a from a icebreaker question, hopefully you've had time to think about your answer to this. I'm keeping this close to the theme of leadership development, but not too close. All right. So my question for you, Matthew, and again, everybody, I'm interested in your answer to this as well. So comment in. But Matthew, what was one of the worst pieces of leadership advice you ever received? Well, I, I had a superior who, when I was getting ready to do performance reviews for the first time, they told me that you should always think about how you would want to receive the feedback, meaning you. And I think it was actually good advice from the heart um, and, and it came from a good place. But I've come to find out it's actually kind of a really bad piece of advice. The, the right strategy is to really think about how the person you're giving the feedback would like to receive it. And if you're a good manager, you should have a good sense of who your people are and how they react to things. So putting yourself in that seat isn't actually the right move because you very well might want to receive the feedback very differently um, than the person. So I think the advice came from a good spot, but I would actually say it was actually relatively pretty bad advice. Okay. <laughs> I, I, it's true, right? I think, I think it's one of the, that was a very lack of empathy piece of leadership advice. Like, well, do what you love and everyone else just expect that it's going to resonate with them. And I, I get what you mean, where it probably came from a good place of try and think what's important to you, you know, yeah. try, and, try and think, but okay, that's fair. So here's, Here's mine. I won't mention. I won't mention where it came from, but it was one that actually inspired me and and actually set me on a different trajectory for things as I moved up. As I remember, I had a mentor once early in my career, and uh, he had. He, we were talking about leadership and moving into different leadership roles, and one of the pieces of advice he said is just one thing that you'll need to consider and just be planning for this is that as you move up into leadership roles, just know that at some point 
you will have to make the decision between your personal and family life and your career. Hmm. And that's something that you have to prepare for and be ready to take on. And I remember even in that moment going, what? <laughs> Did you just tell me I have to choose? Like I'm going to be bonked with a scepter of, well, choose your family or your job. And I remember going, I don't, I don't believe that's true. And if that is true, that is a mold that I wholeheartedly plan on shattering as part of my journey. So needless to say, I have not experienced that. And maybe it's just because I won't, I refuse to allow that to happen. But that was a, a not so good a piece of advice that was given to me early on. Okay, so let's shift gears. Let's start talking a little bit more about it. You're you're coming from ability. So Matthew, when people say, when you say, I work for ability, how do you describe that to people? What would people say it is? So it is an experiential learning company. When we talk about it, we're most known for our simulations. So something that we say frequently is you would not want a pilot to get behind a jumbo jet until they practiced in a simulator and actually simulated what a real world flying experience is like. Our fundamental belief is that corporate leaders should train in a similar fashion. So we have actually built and built leadership programs around simulation-based learning. So we have simulations for new managers, simulations for rising leaders, simulations for senior executives to teach them how to be better people managers, how to understand financial acumen, how to make decisions during times of stress. And we really lean into the competitive team-based simulated learning environment. Okay. So I have to ask, because I'm, I'm going to dig into this one, because I hear experiential a lot. Right? Yeah. Talk about learning experience a lot in our space. And sometimes I don't know that I would really consider it an experience. I would consider it consumption. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, so I'm curious when you say an experiential learning, whatever we want to call it, what does that actually look like? Like how is it different from a, a pathway of high quality leadership content? Cool. So let's say you and I are participating in our manager development simulation. You and I would actually be on a team together in this example. And let's say there's 20 other people in the cohort. So that would be 10 teams of two. You and I would have six virtual employees. Three of them would be on my screen. Three of them would be on your screen. The other 10 teams have the exact same employees. Each of these employees has different personality profiles. There are videos introducing you to them. You role play with the characters. And you and I need to, with our tasks at hand, make the decision of which employees should work together. Okay. We need to make the decision with limited time tokens, who we want to coach and who we want to provide feedback to. And we get real time feedback from the machine with every decision that we make. So you and I are talking, we're communicating, but we're also competing with the other teams in the game. So there is an activeness in the learning. It isn't a passive learning experience. So at the end of every simulated month, we're actually learning what the other teams did. We're learning from our virtual employees and you and I are collaborating, communicating and competing with the other teams. Okay, so it's truly, you're, you're put in essentially a true simulation and saying, hey, here's, here's a thing, work together to solve this problem. And that's more the focus of it versus you know some some of the high quality content that's 
Okay, I, I have so many follow-up questions on this. This is going to be fun. So I okay, that that does then in my book fall into the category of an experience learning, uh, experiential learning experience. I don't know that you can say it that way, but anyway, all right. So that so I love that, and I guess I'm curious, you know, what where did that come from as an organization? As you were looking in, at the market and things like that, why did ability or where did ability come from to say? we think this is a problem in the market that we can we can help solve for. Yeah, so I've been at Ability for about three years now. My background is, is mostly consultative in nature. I spent the better part of the first part of my career at Deloitte. And my, my, I guess my origin story to the field of learning is one of the last projects that I did at Deloitte. Um, I really have no traditional HR learning experience, but one of the last projects I did was helping to design new hire curriculum for our university hires. And I loved it. I fell in love with what we did, facilitating it, all of that. When I found Ability, what intrigued me about it is it was actually born out of an e-learning company. So our founder founded an e-learning company. And then about five, six years ago, spun Ability, the simulation part of the business, out of the e-learning company. And what I like about it is um, we're a smaller company. And I was honestly, as a personal anecdote, very scared to work for a small company. <laughs> but thankfully, the vast, vast, vast majority of our clients are medium to large to global companies. You're talking, you know, Target, Coca-Cola, General Electric, you know, massive organizations. So we are but a small part of their massive learning organizations. We play a very small part. But for lack of a better way to describe it, we get to play the fun part, the really fun, engaging capstone events of new manager programs happening all around the world. And so that's how I got involved. And that's why I love what we get to do. Okay. Okay. So so that, that actually leads me, I'm going to kind of redirect a little bit here, because I am curious from where this fits in, you know, where are organizations looking at doing this or where does it fit into things? Because I think these one of the things that can be tough with simulations is figuring out that balancing act of where do we put this thing so that it's yeah. not just a you know parlor trick where we we you know we kind of randomly have it over here where we do this and and actually integrating it in with purpose and saying hey this is something we're trying to accomplish this is one of those components cuz while i give you know content sometimes can people can interpret it that I give it a bad rap? I think it's extremely valuable. There's value to it. It just can't be the end game. So I am curious, where are organizations partnering or where do they say, you know what, we need to enhance what we're doing with some sort of experience? Where do you see organizations tending to lean on that? So I would say the most fascinating thing that's happened to our business is we've evolved a lot. Um, two years ago, we were almost exclusively you're a leadership, uh, an L&D director at a Fortune 500 company. You have a six-month new manager program where you're taking content, you're bringing in guest speakers, you're doing web, uh, you're doing like online e-learning courses, and you need like a wonderful capstone event. So you come to us and you say there are 200 people. We just want to kind of bolt on another yeah. What's changed about our business is we have more organizations that are saying, okay, we want you to now help us design the entire six-month learning journey and include two simulations, 
an action learning project, group study. We want you to take what you've learned from other organizations and do the whole shebang. And I think the reason is, and I, I hope this is the answer to your question, we're the most successful when a client can tell us these 400 people are going through this six-month learning journey, and we need an event that tests that what actually happened over the last six months stuck. And the way you do that is you simulate the event. So in our decision-making simulation, if your focus of six months is how do we operate cross-functionally as an organization, we're going to have our email engine in the simulation throw you challenges that test your cross-functional communication skills. And that's the capstone event to this leadership program. Okay. So... I'm glad you went there because I think this is where sometimes even the best experiential learning doesn't get the traction that it it could. And I would say experiential learning always is going to have significant impact over not, not having it at Agreed. all. You're actually asking people to do something. So regardless, you're actually asking them to put something into work, but the stickiness factor and the actual application and, and sustainability of it is greatly diminished if it feels like it's completely just kind of bolted on without any sort of thought of, well, we need to have something that's experiential here at the end or, or along the way to make people do something. But if it's not mapped back to the actual experience and what you're talking about, and I think this is the important part of experiential things is figuring out what are those behaviors you're actually trying to simulate and design and measure along the way, not just hey, go do a thing. And in general, we'll say, did you did you finish it or did you not? But what behaviors are we actually measuring through there? And I can see where if you're designing the whole six month thing, or even at least involved in understanding what that whole six month thing is, then you can do that. Otherwise, it just feels like, well, we've got kind of a general. So then that leads me to another question is, which gets into the customization side of things. If based on what I know, you know, from from kind of getting to know you a little bit is you have some kind of general, hey, these are categories, but I'm curious with what have you found over the years in terms of customization? How far do you go with customization versus saying not everything has to be customized? Where do you find that sweet spot? So we play a little bit in both. Um, so we have done full-fledged customization. So we worked with um, Marriott Hotels to build a full-fledged hospitality simulation based off of one of our simulations. Okay. That represents- so what you had, you, you kind of tweaked it. Exactly. That represents like 10 to 15% of our business in a given year. 85 to 90% of our business is our off-the-shelf simulations with the facilitator-led debrief customized. And the reason is kind of twofold. One, rather than going to build a full customization, our clients save a ton of money. There, there isn't, you're using the same simulation that Coca-Cola or that Dell is using, which most people are happy with, and they can tweak the facilitator debriefs. The second reason is, something that is referred to as the uncanny valley. If you try to customize a simulation, so you're a rising manager at company ABC, and we try to customize a simulation to reflect to the T what your day is, you get lost figuring out the two to 5% that we screwed up that doesn't <laughs> look like it. 
<laughs> Whereas if we tell you this is we're pulling you completely out of your day job, embrace that. This is just about your leadership skills. You don't run into the uncanny valley. People simply just let go and focus on being a good people manager or understanding finance or decision making. You don't nitpick that like the screen doesn't look like your desktop does at work. So this is such a I I'm really glad you <laughs> I was going to go here with it and I'm glad you took it there because I I see this go south over the years I've seen this go south on probably more times than I'd like to count where you do see this balancing act where if you go too general if it's too general like way out there people do have a hard time assimilating with it yeah it feels just a little bit too I don't even know how it can't be too abstract. And I have seen some simulations designed in an abstract fashion where even I went, I, I mean, you would have to really be an outside the box thinker to, to, to understand what we're trying to get here, which in very unique situations, I've actually seen that work where you're, where you're really trying to kind of throw people off their game. I would not advise it for most, but that point you brought up about, when you try and design it too close, people do lock in, like you said, on the two things that did, well, my my computer screen doesn't look like. Yeah. That's what you, and they completely miss the other 99% of the authenticity because the two things that, that weren't quite right and they just can't get past it. They literally just can't get past it. So yeah, it's funny that you bring that up because sometimes we are, we have that tendency to try and get it perfect and say, well, how are we going to do that? And you lose time, money, resources. But I have to imagine, because I know I've dealt with this, where you run into stakeholders who that's what they really are pushing for. And how have, how have you battled back with that? Because I have to imagine there's some companies that just go, it's different here. The way you lead is different here. So we, that financial acumen sim that I was talking about is, is probably on, on scale our most popular simulation. And I would say the vast majority of people we interact with when they say, what do they want their leaders to do better? It's understand how the company drives value to the bottom line. Like most of our leaders got to where they are because they were darn good at their job, not because they have an MBA in finance and they you know understand balance sheets like the back of their hand. So we have a game that is focused on balance sheets and income statements and cash flow, but you're selling soft drinks or you're selling printers or you're selling services. And a lot of our clients don't sell any of those things. And so what we try to do is we try to customize the debrief. So there's an example of a large Fortune 500 company. They use this simulation and they actually bring in a senior director of finance to debrief the last quarter's earnings report after the third quarter of simulated gameplay. So the simulation looks nothing like their real world, like legitimately nothing. But after the third quarter, when you have these rising leaders who now have a better understanding of balance sheets, they're understanding cash flow, they're competing, they're hyped up, they want their company to drive the highest valuation, then you take them out of the simulated world 
you bring them into their real world and you bring a director of finance who walks them through their real company's last quarter's earnings report. And for the first time, you have the rising leaders at your organization starting to click about what the heck, how that number got to the income statement. And I think that's the dream scenario. It's like you get them out of their real world to understand something and then you bring them back to their real world and then you're back in the simulation and then you're back to their real world. And I think people stay really engaged. Honestly, I mean, 100% of our work now is using our fully virtual simulations and it keeps people pretty engaged. Okay. Well, and, and if you think about it in this sense, the, the benefit, and I think this goes back, there's a couple applications that I think anybody in learning and development can take from this. But one of the things, if you're thinking about it from a participant standpoint, you're actually improving the experience for them by not forcing cognitive overload. If you really think about it, when you're asking people to go through something that is so directly related to what they're doing and learn this new skill or build this new skill, that's a lot to put on people yeah. because you're asking them to contextualize all this stuff. At the same time, they're trying to figure out even how to do it. And by separating that, you can remove some of the fear factor, some of the cognitive overload pieces of it to say, look, just, just figure out some of this stuff. We're going we're gonna to do this in this simulated safe environment. You don't need to figure out how to put all the pieces together. But then as you come out of it on the other end, you can say, remember all that stuff now? Let's see how this translates over to our business. Now, I have to imagine as part of the design, it, now, is that something then that you're working with an organization on to say, hey, what are these right contextual events to insert your company specific stuff so we can get the most out of it? Yes. And I mean, some of the times it would surprise you, or maybe it wouldn't surprise you. Some of the times it's subtle design changes that make the world of difference. It's like, we would love our company logo to be in the top left-hand corner. Like that will make all of the difference. And that's very easy for us to do. Some of the times it's about getting into the weeds and saying, you know, that language is not how we talk about people management here. So the game is going to send everybody an email with three minutes to go in the third quarter. And that's not how we would say things here. Can we take this sentence out and put a different sentence in? So that's what we hear from a lot of our clients. It's subtle tweaks. And then I think it's to your earlier point that really resonated with me. If we understand what these learners have been through with this cohort group that they're with, we can tell our facilitators how to design an experience that speaks to the journey and a lot of the times the culmination of the journey. We tend to operate as a kickoff or a capstone event. And so if we understand what the entirety of the journey is going to be, I think we can design an event that's going to feel really in the flow for the learners. Okay. Well, and on the on the what you just said about the slight contextual changes. I think is an important one, especially when you think of the culture of the organization. I think that's where there can be some value in saying, look, that that can throw people for a loop. If we're if the language we use here or this is the values that we're based on, if this is how we operate and all of a sudden something comes out of left field that feels very different, I can see that, you know, you can use this to reinforce company culture for sure. And I think those types of subtleties are, it sounds like, relatively easy to make. I mean, I know from an internal side, designing things, those are easy to tweak. It's when you're trying to get 
the nuance of exactly what happened or exactly the product change that you're trying to simulate that, that, that can just send things down a path. Okay. So with that one, the other one I'm, I shoot, now I forgot it. The, uh, well, so the other thing that I want to talk about on this one is from a simulation standpoint. So you talked a little bit about now you're a hundred percent virtual and I will come back to what I was thinking about before, but I actually, this is one you picked up on. You said now it's a hundred percent virtual. I have, there are people out there that would say you cannot do this kind hmm. of thing virtually. It just, it's not as effective. People don't enjoy it. They don't stay engaged. I've got a very strong opinion on this, but I'm curious what you've seen, because obviously it sounds like you used to do, there were times you used to do it differently and it, and virtual was an option. Now you're hundred percent virtual. What has that journey been like? All right. So I'll talk pre-COVID. Virtual was about 20 to 25% of our business. And it was the fastest growing part of our business. So we are, we're not Nostradamus. We did not see this coming, but we did see that the world was moving to a space where flying everybody to one location for a training was becoming difficult and you could deliver learning at scale via breakout rooms and via immersive technology. So we already offered all of our simulations virtual is about a quarter of our business 2019. Um, it's obviously led to the fastest growth that our company has ever seen, given that we were one of the providers who had fully virtual offerings. Okay. I would say two things. One, I think you can deliver an experience that's super engaging virtual if it is highly interactive, moves people in and out of spaces quickly, keeps them guessing. I do think the competitiveness helps. And then the biggest surprise for us, and it shouldn't have been a surprise, but it was, is we have more and more clients saying to us, we need to train in this way because our managers, our leaders, were not prepared to actually lead in this way. So we need to give them a safe space to fail, to practice, and an immersive simulation that's delivered fully virtual where you have to gain consensus in a Zoom breakout room is actually pretty emblematic of the world that we're all operating in and that very few of us train to be successful in. So that surprised us. It shouldn't have surprised us, but that's, I think, been one of the fastest drivers of interest in simulations in the virtual space. Okay. Well, and I think that's that's an important piece because this is, and, and honestly, if you read what's going on industry-wise or you talk to any HR or business leader, this is the world we're in now. And, yeah. and honestly, it was the world many were in before 2020. I think there's Agreed. a lot of folks that were like, wow, the world changed in 2020. Not real. I mean, there were some dramatic changes in 2020 and it just scaled, but it was already, to your point, it was already trending this way long before 2020. And I think, you know, the thing that you brought up about a lot of people leaders were not prepared to lead this way. They weren't, even though they were in many regards leading people this way. It's just only a portion of their people were this way. And honestly, if you've ever been an individual contributor on a team where half the team is in person and you're one of the remote people, it can be a pretty devastating experience to be there. So I think this was a skill gap that probably you saw. It sounds like you really saw this exposed a lot of the leadership skill gaps 
in leaders in operating in a virtual world. Is that fair? I think it's really fair. And I think your point is a good one. It previously, if three people were in a conference room and one person was the Zoom box or the virtual box on the screen, it was hard to have that meeting if you were the virtual person. It in many ways democratized everything when everybody was a virtual box on the screen. The biggest thing that we kind of wonder about or talk about strategically as an organization is in a post-COVID world where things have returned more to normal, are L&D departments going to want to do capstone events in person, which really was a huge part of our business was the, the networking component of it, the interaction with senior leadership. And we were the really fun, engaging, unbelievably impactful, but very different learning experience that played really well in a, in a boardroom or in a big conference room at a hotel where people are screaming and yelling and getting into it. That still happens in the virtual space, and it's allowed us to scale immensely. I mean, we operate in 30 different countries now, and we were doing that before in person, but it was tough to fly facilitators all over the world, organize everything. Now we're operating at scale. The big question for us is, you know, what's going to happen in late 2021 and beyond? Are people just going to embrace the fact that they can do really exciting training from their couch, their kitchen table, their patio, their home office, wherever? You know, it's an interesting it's an interesting topic because I think there are definitely going to be some and this is this is my prediction and my caution to people in in the space is I think there is going to be this natural tendency when things open back up that nostalgia is going to kick in and there's mm -hmm. going to be this tendency where people go, we should bring that back. We should bring that back because remember how much fun it was when we used to do this kind of stuff, not really taking into account all the complexities. And again, the actual, in many cases, lack of impact that you could have, because in, in many regards, even if people had a wonderful experience, the way people actually need to learn is better designed for this. It mm -hmm. really, truly is better designed for this, where people have time to process and they have time to do this and they can actually apply this over time versus, all right, we need to compress and squeeze this all into the last day of a three-day event because that's all the time we have and we're not going to be together again for another two years. Now, that said, I think one of the things that I am going to encourage you know us to think about is how do we not have to pick and choose? And I think that's the part where we can say what's best for everybody. Maybe the people who can be there, great. The people who can't, how do we replicate that and not necessarily force it? And I think that's going to be one of the things that's going to be interesting is we're almost going to have to have this blended experience now where we say, some people are here, some people are there, and regardless, you're going to have the same experience. So I, I could not agree more. And about two years ago, we launched a direct-to-consumer product, which is our first time ever doing that. It was an open enrollment mini MBA. We called it the Invited okay. MBA. 
And it was a 12 week MBA program with the same simulations that we use with corporate leaders all around the world. And we're an Austin, Texas company. So it was designed as a fully in-person mini MBA. So basically nights and weekends for people who either didn't want to, couldn't afford for any reason, they didn't want to go back to school to go get a traditional MBA, but they wanted the networking, they wanted the skills, they wanted all that. So we designed it as an in-person experience. Obviously, COVID threw a wrinkle in that when we started to roll out new cohorts in 2020. <laughs> so we moved the program fully virtual, and it was probably our most successful cohort we've ever had. One, it opened us up to people outside of Austin. Two, it allowed people to not have to worry about commuting after work or on weekends. They were able to do everything. Um, and three, we still got a lot of the benefits out of it from a networking perspective and a skill perspective. We've now rolled the mini MBA into our corporate offering. So we have corporate clients that are running people through it. And we have new cohorts going of the open enrollment. Your point, though, is a really good one. When things return to normal, we are going to move it to somewhat of a hybrid approach for those that are in an area. So study groups where you get together or final capstone events where you have a networking event together in person, because I think that is really vital if you can make it happen. And that's, I think that's exactly where, because we talked, I think, I can't remember. No, this wasn't it. It was a conversation I had earlier this week about the fact that everybody is so unique and different that to try and put anybody in a single box is actually kind of a disservice to it. And so giving people the flexibility to say, what works best for you, regardless of what works best for you, we're going to optimize that experience. So if it's you're here all the time because, hey, it works, fantastic. I would never, even as the digital guy who would be totally fine with never going anywhere in person, probably for the rest of my life, I would never ever in the world imagine telling in a group of people who were cohabitated in an office Go sit at your desk and put headphones on. Like, don't talk to each other because it's better for you to be in a Zoom room together. No, it works out. You're there. Take advantage of the fact that it works. But if you're not, don't force it just because you're trying to make that happen because you may be adding more complexity, more issues. People may have personal situations, things like that that make it actually detracting and a negative experience for them because you're now forcing them into this thing that does not work for them versus saying, hey, if it works for you, great. If it doesn't, here's what we have and this is how it works. And if you like both, so be it. Make yeah. the most of what you can. And I think that's where technology is really unlocking the possibilities of what you can do in the space. Could not agree more. And I think it's going to be fascinating what happens. Your comment earlier made me think about the fact that at least at our organization, and I've heard others talk about it, I think COVID in many ways was an accelerant. It accelerated a lot of the trends. I don't think it necessarily changed where the trends were going. I would say the trend was towards more hybrid work, not fully remote for everybody. We had to do a period of fully remote for everybody. I do think hybrid is the answer going forward. That's what we're planning for. And, and that's that's what I kind of think we'll see. Yeah. And again, it, you just have to be, and I think this is where sometimes you see these debates rage on of like, which is best. And 
like there, there's not an answer to that question. In-person is not best. Virtual is not best. Hybrid is not. It's it's truly, I think, empowering people. I mean, we're, we're adults. We're professionals in being able to say what works best for you. So uh, anyway, that's not the topic of the show. We could get lost in this one for the for the rest of the afternoon if we needed to. But so let's go back to this, because one of the other things I'm curious about, and then I do want to dig into the tech a little bit on this, is as you talked about the engagement piece, you hinted at some of the the different elements of this that have made it engaging, which are kind of the fast paced nature of it, the experiential component, the collaboration, all these things that people crave when it comes to, you know, actually staying engaged. You, You don't stay super engaged for an hour of somebody going through PowerPoint slides. It's just, it's very difficult to, but you will stay engaged in these other elements. So I'm curious, you didn't say the word gamification. Yeah. <laughs> intentional, not intentional. What we're talking about in some regards is kind of game design and game yeah. learning, but I'm curious how that's been incorporated because sometimes you throw that word, and it can have a polarizing effect on people. Yeah, so all of our games have a scoreboard component. So it is impossible for me to not say that gamification is both part of the design and it is by design that it, that it is like that to keep people engaged. Uh, my firm belief is that learning is battling an environment where people are easily distracted and people demand control. Um, I think the our world has changed so much where you have a bevy of distractions that can grab your attention And given the gamification of everyday life, you kind of demand to be a little bit in control of your learning. To your point, passively having PowerPoint slides dictated to you, even if they ask you to type something into the chat every 15 minutes, just isn't going to get there. And so, yes, you and your partner, you and your team are constantly aware of the scoreboard, constantly aware of how you're performing. But, and this is the big but, It's in a way so that in the debriefs after every simulated month or quarter of gameplay, you can get back into the main classroom and talk about what your team is doing, why you're doing it, and ask your peers to explain as well. And the facilitator is looking at the scoreboard and the the dynamism of the game to pull out and say, hey, I see this team is doing this and it's driving this result on the balance sheet. Why did you guys do that? Or in our decision-making simulation, you have these external events. So they're like emails that get generated to you and you have a limited amount of time to make a decision. Our facilitator will say, hey, I see this team the VP of, of sales and marketing got this email, but the CEO never made the decision. Like what happened? What was the dy- dynamic like in your in your breakout room? So yes, there is that scoreboard gamification element, but it really is done in a way to draw out what's happening in the game, not to pick just generic winners and losers. Well, this goes back to just like what you talked about from the experiential piece and where do you augment with you know, pieces of custom, not custom, but company specific content versus generic content is it's about the intentionality behind it. And I think that's where sometimes gamification gets a bad rap is it's been used and abused in ways that have given it kind of a negative, negative feel for some people where it's just been haphazardly thrown in, right? Let's, let's make this a game for what, 
to what end, to what purpose is this adding to the experience or how is it reinforcing the behaviors we're driving towards versus, you know, a party trick? Well, one of my favorite things about the invited MBA is we use all three of the simulations, but we also use case studies like HBR case studies. And, and I am somebody who, who got my MBA. I went back to school part time while I was at Deloitte. And it was a, uh, you know, a transformative experience in my young professional career. What I like about what we're doing, though, is we're saying, OK, case studies are hugely powerful and they're a great way to learn about things that happen in the real business world. But the case study is the, the comes before the simulation. So in the simulation, you're then tying back to, well, this is what happened in the real world. Now you're in the driver's seat. What are you doing? Why are you doing it? And how are you performing as a result? So in, in a traditional MBA program, you read the case study and then you discuss it with everybody in the room. In our experience, you read the case study, you discuss the case study, and then you jump into a simulation and you put yourself into the driver's seat. And that's the component that I really love. Okay. Okay. So it is this blended experience of, hey, there, there is still the content of understanding what's going on, having that discussion, that robust discussion so that you're contextualizing it, but then saying, let's let's play this out. Let's see how this actually would play if, if we were to run this. hundred uh, percent. Okay. So on the, so I am curious about this on the tech side and, and interested how this is pulled together, because one of the things that can be challenging for people is sometimes we operate off this underlying assumption that everybody just understands how to use technology and, and it's super easy. And, and those of us who do use it all the time are probably the worst proponents of it because we're so used to it, we wrongly assume everybody knows how to do that. And what you're talking about, this sounds like there's a fair amount of moving pieces to it. And I think this will get to one of the questions I'll ask here in a little bit, but how are you pulling all this together from a user experience standpoint? Because to me, that is that can't be overlooked. Even the best experiential learning experience. I keep coming back to that, right? But even the best one, if it feels like you've MacGyvered this together with 37 different pieces of technology, that broken user experience can create such a negative effect that people can't move past that. They just can't move past it. So how how does that fit together so it's not clunky? Yeah. So every one of our experience is simply a browser-based game. So for all of our clients, we, we create a custom URL. So it would be www.ability.com backslash company XYZ. And for every participant, they basically just use their name as a login. We have some companies that, that don't share participant information. And so we can create dummy profiles for them. Okay. But when you log in, um, our finance sim, basically what you see is on the left side of the screen, you see a bunch of controls where you can change the price, you can change your payment terms, you can modify what industries you're selling into, you can make decisions. On the right side of the screen is the balance sheet, the income statement and the cash flow. You make decisions, your team makes decisions, you see the impact, and then at the end of the quarter, all of the decisions lock and you see the ramifications. And so then you go from a breakout room in Zoom, for example, back to the main classroom and you see what every other team did. You discuss, there's a lesson plan, and then you move back to the breakout room for your next strategy session. Okay. In the manager simulation, you see 
the faces of your actual virtual employees. You see their skill sets and you see the controls where you can coach them. You can provide recognition. You have like a Slack like messaging interface where you get emails and direct messages from your employees. And some of them, they'll like send a video. So you can actually like watch a scenario and then you make decisions on the right side of the screen of what tasks to put them on. And you see the results um, on the left side. Okay. Okay. So there's, so you're really, if I'm understanding this, there's basically two components from a technology standpoint. There's the actual meeting interface tool where you're, you know, virtually collaborating, whatever, Zoom, we don't have to talk number, uh, companies, but basically the virtual meeting yep. piece. And then there's this browser-based where everything's kind of encapsulated there that they can just do all these other activities. 100%. And the goal is, to your earlier point, and I think the, the crux of the question, the goal is simplicity. You know, in the, in the classroom, you don't have the video conferencing interface if you're actually in a physical classroom. So all you have is your device, computer, iPad, whatever. In the virtual space, you obviously need to have the virtual conference pulled up and you need to have a browser. So you're constantly tabbing between the two, but we don't want to make it any more complicated than that. Okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. And and again, like I said, I've, I've seen and been part of teams that have, you know, you sometimes get carried away, right? Like, what if we did this? And what if we did this? And pretty soon people have to have 73 browser tabs and 20 <laughs> custom apps open. And, and you're like, nobody is keeping track of all this stuff anymore. And in theory, it sounds good, but it, it doesn't always play out well. Um, so, so that leads me to the next question then, because we've talked about this. Well, actually, no, I'm going to ask one more question and then I'm going to go to this one. So from, to me, one of the biggest things of experiential learning that is so impactful is the fact that you actually have opportunity to see people's behavior changing. You, you mm -hmm. get, as even you talked about people making decisions, people doing things, how are they interacting? That's a lot of data that you're that you're potentially seeing and capturing from a measurement standpoint. How then is that coming back to, you know, if I if I'm a head of learning or head of leadership development and I'm looking at this going, that's great if we go through this experience. But if I can't tell that story or I don't actually have data showing that it really does put me in a category of it's nothing more than a, you know, I've got some feel good smile sheets. That's the best I do. So how are, you know, how do you then take that and put it back in a meaningful package so that people can see, Hey, here's actually what came out of it. Okay. So two ways I can approach that. One, we have had clients use us as a hiring decision tool or an assessment tool or a promotion readiness tool. Um, we partner with a lot of global organizations that do that. And we, along with some of our other partners, use our simulation in that context directly. Okay. The bulk of the work that we do, though, is more on the L&D like, leadership program side. And we are the most successful when somebody is going into our simulation and let's say they've participated in three months of content and they are actually scoping out what they want to showcase from a behavior and a skill perspective in the simulation. And then they are reflecting after the simulation how they came through it. The best example that I can give is in our people manager simulation, the thing that drew me to it originally was the fact that it is really freaking scary 
to try a new management technique on real people. Like yeah. you may think that you're, you would be a better manager if you did X, Y, Z, but you have gotten to where you are because you did ABC for your entire career. And you don't want to try something new on somebody real and somebody's real career. So the simulation gives you the opportunity to, if you go into it and say, during this game, I want to focus on being a more empathetic leader and want to make sure that I'm showcasing. I just want to try it out and see what happens. Yeah, I just want to try it out. Or I've always, we just did a, a, you know, a technique about situational leadership, or we just read this book as a group and there was 10 pages of the book that really resonated with me. And I've never led like that. I'm going to spend the simulation focused entirely on being that type of manager. And then I'm going to reflect on it at the end. So to your question, we the, the the experience is spit out at the end, meaning the results are available for the practitioner and for the L and D professional. Well, I think that's kind of what I was getting at is yeah. the, the results and the data behind you know these individual things. You you're actually being able to that that's not just like a gut feel like, well, we think this is how this happened or played out. There's actual data behind the decision making and the process that can then be used to say, here's how people performed. Exactly. And I think one of my one of my favorite things that we try to do is at the end of the experience, the reflective piece is what do you want to do going forward? So in our in that manager sim that I keep talking about management challenge, you have these fictitious conversations with these virtual characters. Well, one of the last activities is you need to pick one of your real employees and talk about the conversation that you need to have with them. So what's the first conversation that you need to have Monday morning? Um, the six characters have these different character archetypes and usually three to four of them will resonate with people on your team. And I think you start to really become attached to those characters and you start to realize the conversations that you're not having with your real employees when you need to have them with your virtual simulation employees. Okay. Got it. <laughs> the light bulbs start going on. Yeah. Okay, so then we've we've talked at length here about all the all the good stuff, all the greatness, how it works. One, but there's always the challenges that pop up, or the things that you know maybe an organization didn't anticipate, or didn't expect, or didn't go so well. What are some of those things when when you've gone into an organization? What are some of the pitfalls? that they can people can watch out for if they're looking at doing something like this or what are some of the things i'm just curious over your time there where you've thought hey we were going here it did not go according to plan this just like in the sim we we tried this thing yeah. went boom and now now we need to learn from it i would say the biggest thing that we the hurdle we run into is is not cost it's not a, a appeal of experiential learning. I think everybody has a fundamental like, oh, that'd be great. We'd be able to get people super engaged. The biggest hurdle we run into is time. Um, our simulations, we offer four, six, and eight hour experiences. We're at our best when we're at like a six to eight hour experience, which is usually broken out over two days in the virtual classroom. I would say we have a lot of clients who are under time pressure. And so they want to try to fit it into a smaller window. And I would have to say we, we the, the, the failures that we've had or the missteps that we've had have been trying to stick six hours of content and reflection into a three hour window. And I don't mean that to say like, oh, our content is amazing. You should get the whole experience. It's more that 
when you're asking somebody to take the leap of like, you're going to jump into a simulation, you really need to ask them to take the leap for the entire time period. And we run into a lot of issues trying to finagle content into the window that our clients have. And in all honesty, and, and just throwing my cards on the table, we should turn some of those down. And we're getting better at doing that and waiting for the right opportunity with the organization, not trying to fit our simulation to you know the micro learning approach. We're, we're not that, and I don't think we're ever gonna be that. Well, and, and to be fair, I don't think experiential learning, well, I'm not gonna say never should, because I think there are times where you can you can pulse some micro experiences out there and they yeah. can work. They can work well to say, hey, we're, we're gonna test and reinforce and some of this stuff. But if you're building new skills, I would agree that that's not something, Taylor Blake and I were talking about this the other day, the fact that that, that, that can't happen. You, we can't keep doing this micro nano kind of crunching of things and expect it to have the same impact. Now, to be fair, though, I think this is where for learning leaders, it's important for us to be able to really set these expectations is that naturally comes because in my opinion, I think our businesses and our business leaders have seen these types of things where there's lots of fat in the mix that can be trimmed yeah. out. Lots of fat in the mix where you go, you know what? I get it's eight hours, but we can really do it in three, right? Because we all know we've got four hours of content that we really didn't need to go through. We probably could have done it here or things like that. And it's been so bloated that, that we've actually kind of created this mess for ourselves because that's in many regards what people have experienced. And so now they're saying, we know this can be leaned down. And I think what you're getting at is once you've leaned it down and you've said, this truly is a lean program, trying to crunch it even further, you're actually diminishing the experience itself. Well, if we tried to, as an organization, consciously make the decision to not make it about cost. So if you do a four hour program with us versus an eight hour program, there's actually no cost difference. We can run the simulation with a standard program at four, six and eight hours. The goal for us is to give you the experience that you're looking for. So the eight hour experience is our like creme de la creme, but it doesn't cost more than the four hour experience. And we think the four hour experience is awesome. It's just like, we're trying to, to your point, not feel like we're adding fat or adding stuff just to, you know, extend our hourly fees in some way. Not that others do that, but our goal is to really try to say, this is the experience. We can do it in different chunks, but what we've learned is we can't do it in smaller chunks than what we've already chunked out. At some point you hit diminishing returns. Yeah. So we can take more out, but you're actually losing. You're actually losing. Agreed. So I'm curious then on that, because that is a real, I mean, if you look at any of the research studies out there done on people's number one challenge to their own development, they'll say time. Time's mm -hmm. always at the top of the list, which my opinion is we all have the same 24 hours. So if you're not prioritizing it. It's not because you don't have time. It's because it's not a priority. So what are some of the things that you've found? I'm curious just on your end, what are some of the things that have helped shift that conversation? Because it's a real conversation. If you've been in this space for more than a month, you've had a conversation about, we just don't have time to do that. Yeah. My favorite technique is um, give us a test group. Give us a pilot group of 20 individuals. Like, let's say we're talking to an organization that has 
600 people globally that go through a new manager program with them. And we would love to win the full business. And we think we would do a wonderful job if we won the full business. But they're thinking that they have three and a half hours as a capstone event. And I'd say to them, you know, give us 20 people. They don't even have to be from that group. They can just be from a hodgepodge group, but let us run the full six hour experience. My hunch is, and this has played out before, the feedback is going to be, and man, this was great. We should change this. We should tweak this. And, you know, I'd actually would have loved another hour. And, and so then you can go back to the director of L&D and say, you know, I think it would be worthwhile for us to at least wait until you feel like you can do the six to seven hour experience. Because here was the 17 pieces of feedback that we got. And 13 of them talked about the fact that, man, they would have loved another month of simulated gameplay and debrief and discussion. Like before we roll this out, let's really talk about how you're designing your whole program. So I would rather push the point of us winning the bigger business to prove to them the validity of the full experience. Okay. What's so funny about that, what's so funny about that is I know for a fact <laughs> that for some, it is impossible to imagine that people would say, I want to spend more yeah. time <laughs> in this virtual thing. I'm telling you, I know there are people that are like, that has never been said. And it's so funny that you say that because I'm I'm sitting here going, I have had that conversation multiple times where people go, can we actually stick around longer? Can we, can we extend this? Because if you're doing it right, that is how people yeah. feel. And it can be done. I think we have to blow this myth out of the water that it's just not the same. It's just not as good. People are just kind of there because... Yes, that is a hundred percent true. If it's if you've taken what you did in person and you simply just dumped it into Zoom, yeah, yes. If if you did that, then absolutely, people are going to be asking for more time back. They're going to be asking if you can cut cut more out of it. All this, but if you've actually architected a meaningful, fast paced, applicable experience where people are actually doing it. They are not asking you to make it shorter. They are not asking you to make it shorter. I, I have seen it time and time again, and it's actually, to your point, really funny when people get that feedback. You can almost just see that, like, what did you say? You, you want to go further than that? Yes, please. I'll make more time. Can I block off more of my schedule to do this, this online thing? But I think we've just been trained that it's, it's somehow not the same or not as good. Well, and we operate as an organization, we're well aware that we're asking a lot. You know, in our invited MBA program, we're asking you to give up nights and weekends. In our senior leader programs at Fortune 500 companies, we're asking some of the highest powered decision makers at global billion dollar companies to give up eight hours. Like you better perform if you're asking that. I mean, that's exceptionally valuable time. And so that's some of the burden, but also I think what drives us forward. I love it. I love it. Well, we're, we're, I always run out of time on these things, but I think one of the the final points that I will make with that, because it is, it is so important that one, like you said, that you're architecting something that is meaningful for people. But I think the other thing that you hit on is you have to set expectations for that. Yeah. I feel like setting expectations is one of the simplest, but often overlooked things that people miss. They, 
They don't acknowledge the fact that th we are asking a lot from you, or this is going to take this kind of time or this kind of commitment. We're aware of that. You need to know this coming in, but be prepared for that because 100%. if you don't set those expectations, people will come in with their personal biases. They'll come in and go, oh, this is probably going to be one of those things that I can put on mute. And I've, I, I actually kind of booked a bunch of meetings during the day too that I'm going to take because they didn't have that expectation. And I think I personally have seen that expectation setting dramatically change outcomes. I couldn't agree more. And I think it's what makes me excited about the future. Uh, it, it's definitely something that our firm thinks a lot about, about how do we design new experiences and how do we refine the experiences that we have? Well, as always, it has been good chatting again, and I appreciate the time you set aside to have this conversation. Hopefully everybody watching this, this has given you a little bit of a different perspective on how to think about leadership development, but also experiential learning and, and how to do that in the digital age in a meaningful way. So I really appreciate the time. Um, thanks everybody for watching. Thank you for joining me, Matthew, and I hope you have a wonderful weekend. We will see you all again next week.